Yeah. Basically, it's through interactions with people that you encounter the culture of your workplace. The culture of your workplace isn't some abstract concept. It is. It is the. Um, it, it it just realizes itself when you offer an idea at a meeting, and do people roll their eyes and look away, or do they encourage you and nod to the, the other people try to build on that idea with you and take it somewhere? That's when you experience the culture of a workplace. It's not some abstract idea. It's what happens in those social encounters in the moment when you're there directly with other people. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky. And today I have a very special guest, Professor Michael Leiter, who's joining me from Australia, Melbourne. Welcome. Very good to be here. So thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Um, as it quite often happens, I have seen Dr. Leiter's um, articles and writings via LinkedIn. Um, and especially one article really caught my eye, which was about burnout and the actual causes of burnout. So I started digging a little bit deeper and turns out that Professor Leiter is really the world renowned uh, professor and authority on burnout, on job burnout and work engagement. He actually coined the term work engagement in one of his books with Dr. Christina Maslach. Originally from the US, uh, Dr. Leiter was for a number of years professor uh, uh, of psychology at Acadia University in Canada. And quite recently he moved to uh, Deakin University in Australia. And I'm just so excited to be exploring these ideas and, and his research um, on job burnout, which is of course quite related to what we're doing at the Work Life Hub. So without further ado, um, may I ask you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your work, and really what led you then to really deep dive and research uh, job-related burnout? Well, thank you. Uh, it is very good to be talking with you, Agnes, about this this topic, which I do thoroughly enjoy talking about. I've um, gotten, I, I, my original training in my PhD was actually in clinical psychology focusing on family therapy, which is a uh, discipline that puts your attention on what's going on between people uh, much more than what's going on in the, in, in the depths of people. And it was a fairly easy transition over to looking at organizational psychology, where instead of family groups, you're looking at work groups and how things uh, it, occur when people are interacting with each other at work and where things work out fine and where things go off of the rails uh, and what's going on between that person and the environment in which they're working. So I I was uh, 
working with actually with a residential mental health facility at one point back in the 1980s when I read Christina Maslach's initial article with Susan Jackson on job burnout. And I said, well, this is interesting. This relates to the kinds of crises I saw happening in the work environment around me. So I just one day um, picked up the telephone. It was back then when people communicated by telephone. <laughs> and uh, I just phoned her out of the blue one day and said, hi, and introduced myself and said, I would like to come to Berkeley for my upcoming sabbatical year and uh, learn about burnout with you and work on this issue. And she said, fine. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I drove from Nova Scotia to California, which was uh, a fascinating view of North America along the way, and spent a year there working with her. And we uh, developed some ideas and published some articles. And the rest, as they say, is history. I've been staying with the topic in one way or the other since then. And uh, that's seen me through in Canada at Acadia. Now here I am in, uh, in Melbourne, Australia. And the issue remains a vibrant one that people are exploring in terms of conceptual ideas as well as the practical issues about how do you uh, address this as a problem in people's careers. And I've also read about you that you have and you are also advising organizations, employers directly. And um, if I'm not mistaken, especially some of the fields are like healthcare. So I'm particularly also interested in this link between research and practice, because quite often we find that there is a, a gap between the two and, and practitioners don't have access to some of this information or, or new understandings. And, and then sometimes they reach for quick fix solutions or just have access to um, service providers who are providing, you know, the, the lunchtime yoga or the ping pong table or the, or I am, I'm always talking about this ping pong tables, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, so, so perhaps, um, uh, going back, uh, taking a step back, um, I recently was traveling on the subway and next to me was a lady Googling burnout on her phone. And there's so much, so many articles, uh, about burnout, but what is it really? Um, because I wonder if sometimes people have a misconception about what it is, and then that misguides, you know, the attempts at solutions. Okay, well, that's, yes, let's take that on. I think that um, you, you, you are right that there is a lot of advice about burnout these days. There is a lot you can read both online or on paper journals or and uh, one thing that you find when you look at the research, and there's been a lot of research on burnout over the past uh, few decades, is that precious little of that research is on inter evaluating intervention studies. Very little of the research is actually testing out methods for addressing the problem. Uh, and one can go on quite a bit about why that is, but the fact is that's the case, that intervention research is relatively rare. And um, at this stage of things, I'm much, much more interested in intervention because it's when you can change something and particularly change it for the better that you 
both learn a lot and demonstrate that you learn a lot about a phenomenon. Um, and, and looking at it from lots of different points of view doesn't necessarily get you that far. What I've been focused on in that regard has brought to me the idea that the most useful way to look at burnout is really as a relationship breakdown. And the relationship that's central here is the relationship between the person and their work context, their workplace, uh, the work environment and the person, that that's a relationship and one where there are expectations, there's obligations, there are demands, there are hopes, uh, there's a long timeline, but it's really something more useful, I think, to think about as something going on between people, uh, between a person and their work context, than it is to think of it as a mental illness or an emotional disturbance uh, within the person. And, and I think a lot of these approaches locate the problem entirely within the person. Uh, the assumption behind that is that, well, workplaces are perfectly well-managed and completely reasonable places to spend your life. Uh, so you should just get with the program and live with it. But another way to look at it is to say, you don't really have to be emotionally disturbed in order to, uh, in order to dislike bad management. Um, that actually, uh, that, that workplaces are settings where people not only spend a lot of time, but are working through very important dimensions of who they are as persons, about finding out about how they really do relate with other capable people in terms of relationships and in terms of just capabilities and efficacies, your capacity to affects the world and make a difference in your life, a lot of that's going to happen through work settings. These are very important settings. And to be frustrated in those aspirations is something that has an emotional kind of impact on people. So I think that I really look at this, there are two particular parts of this relationship, sort of two dimensions that are quite important, one of which has to do with just your energy level and that subjective sense of having some energy, enough energy to do what you need to do today. That that is a, a very precious kind of resource that uh, you, you know, well, waxes and wanes through the day, but you, 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 you need to be able to work in a way that sustains that throughout at a reasonable length of time and allows capacity to recover that energy. So that energy process is one of them, but that's not entirely an internal person thing. That's how the person interacts with the environment in, in many ways and the demands and the opportunities that they encounter along the way. And the other dimension really has to do with their values, with um, their primary motivations. And that can have to do with connecting with other people, with uh, pursuing ideals that they want to realize in their life through the quality or direction of their work. And, um, and, 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 and that sense of, of, of agency, of having an impact on the world and being able to do that. That these dimensions, uh, when you know, people have those aspirations, which are reasonable aspirations, and the question is what happens when they encounter the environment in which they're working day in and day out? Are they being 
furthered, fulfilled, frustrated, uh, stretched, or um, just meeting indifference. Those kinds of things, and and uh, w when that happens, people do feel you know cynical, disengaged, uh, depersonalized. Uh, they feel uh, an lack of efficacy. They feel exhausted. Uh, but I think to think of that entirely as some quality of the person really misses the point that it's the quality of how this person is interacting with the environment, how the environment's interacting with the person. Absolutely. And when uh, we had um, Professor Kerry Cooper on the podcast a while back, he said that the number one stressors for uh, employees at the workplace is the incompetent uh, line managers. And yeah, well, I that's what you encounter. Yes. Yeah. Basically, it's through interactions with people that you encounter the culture of your workplace. The culture of your workplace isn't some abstract concept. It is. It is the. Um, it, it it just realizes itself when you offer an idea at a meeting, and do people roll their eyes and look away, or do they encourage you and nod? Do the, the other people try to build on that idea with you and take it somewhere? That's when you experience the culture of a workplace. It's not some abstract idea. It's what happens in those social encounters in the moment when you're there directly with other people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I think that's why a lot of these um, solutions that, you know, I have come across um, in, in our experience working with employers, um, they would like to give people, I mean, they, they recognize that their people are stressed, um, but then it's another very difficult step of self-awareness or humility to understand that they may be contributing to this stress. So there's a lot of deflection, what I have seen in organizations to say, okay, we'll just pay, we'll pay our people some coaching, or can, can you offer some stress management or resilience building for our people? And the way I phrase it always is that, you know, if the container is dysfunctional, you cannot just take out the people, send them to a weekend retreat or a spa, and then they put them back into the dysfunctional container, it, it will not happen. Why do you think this is that is so difficult to, to, to acknowledge for leadership or management or even, you know, employees themselves that, that it's a collective contribution and a shared responsibility? Well, because doing so requires that management has to change. And while management often is criticizing employees for resisting change, and managers aren't all that hot about change either when you look at what they do. I think, and I think there's also, I, I, I've been thinking about that there are two really fairly distinct ways that things go off the rails in this regard. And one of which is just, management practice there some organizations have a really tough management practice they want to kick butt they want to get people to work by uh, pressuring them and using really sort of fairly coercive kinds of power in order to get things done and that's their culture and uh, they'll actually you know explain to you why that's a good thing to do in various ways uh, you know but basically one there's a bag where the things that this are distressing the employees are really what management's doing on purpose. That's what they mean to do. 
And then there, but there are other worlds where, and I think with a lot I deal with in public sector, it's probably more the majority, where there's other worlds where the things that are really distressing people are contrary to the ideals and tensions of the leadership. They're just, but it's not being their hopes or their management culture that they hope to promote just simply isn't being realized because perhaps training's not adequate, monitoring's not adequate. Uh, they just simply, uh, when, 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 when I think a lot of managers, when they get under big pressure, like first nine kinds of managers under a lot of pressure, they, 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 they don't revert to their best management practices. They, they get into being coercive. They get into doing things which uh, are really suboptimal. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll try what they learned at their transformational leadership training in the first instance, but if that doesn't work, then they revert to uh, well, what they learned in school or something, you know, different kinds of things. So I think there's, there's, there's a, this is, what I think is an important difference is what's causing problems. Is that really the intended management culture or is that a breakdown of their culture? Is that just showing that when I get into looking at things like bullying and, you know, the really negative social side of how managers behave at times, uh, I see a lot of that's really contrary to the ideals of what leadership is looking for, but they are not managing the organization that allows them to uh, be on top of that. So that's a different. So they, they, they're lacking the capacity to shape the manager's behavior in a more positive. And that's, in a way, a deeper problem. Yes, and also shaping this in the long term which really requires a lot of rigor, a lot of discipline, a lot of self-discipline, because, you know, there are these one-off bursts of uh, we're going to an off-site or we'll have a team building and then kind of reverting back, as you said, as soon as the temperatures are rising, these knee-jerk reactions of of more control, more command. Um, and and But I also have found, and I don't know what is your experience with this, that when there's a new management coming in that is much more laissez-faire or helping people flourish, that some employees then get also lost a little bit if they don't have this uh, very strict frame or structure uh, or deadlines. Or is this because that's how we have been socialized in school or it's, it's difficult to, is it a question of relationship? Uh, or, or responsibility? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, when, when we frame things to look at work groups, we give a lot, a lot of uh, weight to the, you know, the manager, uh, the first line manager, particularly in that work group. And, and, and they, that's reasonable in many ways, but it's not the whole story. I mean, there's a lot more going on and that individuals, the, you know, the whole work group, has a culture that sustains itself. And I think that, yeah, I, I certainly see uh, a lot of, I, I've seen places where they've changed the manager with the hope of, you know, making a significant improvement in the workplace culture, and they find it doesn't actually change all that much. So it isn't only managers that are, that, that, they, they aren't the only ones that are making things happen here. I think they're, uh, the group as a whole has a lot of power. They don't, 
acknowledge it themselves. And even, uh, you know, organizational psychologists sometimes miss what's going on in that regard and put extra weight, more weight on the leader than the leader really uh, owns. So I think it's, and that, again, that's part of where it is tough because uh, in terms of addressing issues, uh, you know, like simply telling people to be more resilient is clearly not an answer to what I'm framing as a relationship problem. But telling management just to make things better, that isn't either. It really is a relationship problem in which both sides need to be working on this. And individuals need to go, okay, well, I've got to loosen up and get more insightful into myself while management, we're also changing the parameters of how the work gets done here. Uh, you got to get with that program and not just drag your feet and say, well, I'm never going to change anything about me. That's not going to get you anywhere either. It's a very volatile world. So that's where, um, you know, like having something that is a uh, developing, again, like more like a relationship development exercise rather than uh, treatment for individuals or even management uh, uh, practice change. It, it's really more of an interaction between people and their workplaces that really is going to make a sustainable difference and a difference that's going to be embedded in how the work's going to go forward from that point. Mm, fantastic. Um, and now I think that w the other challenging um, notion uh, for uh, people you know who are not um so vested in these uh in these uh, disciplines is to separate stress and chronic stress and and burnout um because somehow we got to used to stress being uh you know a part of it all um and and some of it is actually can be you know at up to some level it's it's quite good because we're motivated, we're ready for it, we're going out um, to get it. But um, I wonder how easy it is for an organization or colleagues or for the person themselves to understand that this is no longer in the range of what should be acceptable and that I'm heading for burnout. Because I, I somehow feel that the, the burnout has become a, a kind of a um, uh, a, a boogeyman <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and that we're, you know, we're still okay with some levels of stress, but then, oh, is this burnout? Is this burnout? And we may not even be conscious about what are actually the signs or how can I tell that I'm going down that road? Yes. Yeah, so what are really the indicators that an individual can pick up that says that, that I'm heading down that road towards burnout? And it is a very, you know, it's very useful to be able to identify these things early in the process, because when people get really the full burnout syndrome, uh, when they are exhausted every day and cynical, when they're really, people, it's very hard to get out of that. It's very hard to get out of that. I, a lot of times people have to not only change their job, but change their entire career. So being able to catch this before it starts galloping away into, uh, is, it's, it's a very useful thing. I think one, I mean, you stick with the prime indicators here, and one of which is exhaustion. And I think really the definitive piece 
to watch for is the item that goes, uh, I feel tired before the workday begins. That is that is an indicator. And, and to feel that way once in a while probably just means you've got an interesting social life. But if you're feeling that way, many, you know, very, multiple times a, day, a week, right? Not in like, your 20s. <laughs> not in your 20s, right. But uh, when you're feeling that way, just sort of day after, you know, it's just a very common that you're starting to feel, I just feel tired before the day begins. It, it means that things are out of kilter. I mean, part of that can be entirely within the job being so intense or uh, time demanding or whatever. That is the job itself. It could also, uh, it's how you interact with your personal life. It's like what kind of rest and recovery and relaxation and uh, distraction are you finding in your life? So that, you know, are you able to recover your energy? And if you're not, that's, that is, that's, that's a big signal. So, uh, and, and uh, if you find that there really is nothing you can do in terms of improving your sleep or your exercise or your time away, that with this job, there's no way you can have a reasonable lifestyle in terms of recovering your energy. That's a big, that's a big sign. That's a very big sign. So watch for that. Uh, uh, again, just once in a while, that's just life. But if it's a regular part uh, you know, of, of, of a work week that you have some days where you're just tired before the day begins. That's that's a signal. Another is um, with the cynicism side of it. If you find that the only conversation you can have at work is complaining about what idiots the managers are around here, that's not a good sign. <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that can be a fun conversation to have some of the time, or maybe even an analytical one that will help you learn how to be a better manager yourself. But that's if you become obsessed with that point, uh, that's sort of a sign that maybe that, that cynicism is getting a foothold in you that's going to get in your way in terms of finding. Uh, because that, and the main thing about that is that you've lost the, uh, you've lost the, 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 what you loved about the job in the first place. You, you, you lost what you drew you into doing this kind of work to begin with. Like you have some uh, gloomy so. glasses on all the time, right? Yes, those gloomy glasses, yes. And and, and, and people are avoiding you because you're always <laughs> complaining. Uh, this is this is not a good place to be. And uh, it means that if you're complaining that much, you really you've got to figure out, you gotta find a solution. Uh, work towards the solution one way or the other. And then, so that's, that, those are the two biggies. And the third one is that, is that sense of efficacy. And, uh, you know, which means having a sense that you are doing important work and that you're good at it. And uh, that essentially, the longer you do this job, the smarter you're, you're, you, you are. And if you're losing that, you say, the longer I do this job, the stupider I am. <laughs> the longer I do this job, the more stuck I am into a uh, rut that's going nowhere. Uh, that's another sign that burnout is, um, you know, becoming a risk. The risk of burnout is increasing at that point. Because those are, those are the key dimensions. And that's what, I, and the thing about burnout, it is this subjective qualities of energy involvement, you know, um, and sense of efficacy and monitoring those, those particular feelings and seeing how they're expressing themselves. 
day to day. It's something, and, and that doesn't have to be a crisis with all three of those, but uh, they do tend to start moving together after a while. But uh, any one of those is something worth attending to and deciding, I think I'll make a, adjustments here on what I'm doing with myself. Mm, absolutely. And uh, just a question popped up in my head while you were explaining this and taking us through these um, indicators that you have followed um, uh, the burnout um, literature and 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 um, discipline basically uh, for quite a few years uh, prior to digitalization and the internet and smartphones. Uh, has this been something that you... Uh, picked up on that, um, you know, our connectedness, um, the internet, our devices, the perhaps the inability to put them down or switch off on the weekends, has that contributed to a rise in burnout? Uh, is, is there a significance or that is something that perhaps we also just try to bring in into the picture, but we don't know exactly yet how it interacts? Mm. Well, it definitely interacts. It definitely interacts. Um, you know, it's a quality of the greater intensity of work life that is occurring now that the technology allows. I think that in a way, it, 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 the, the fact that you can take your work with you rather than just leave your work at the workplace and go home, but the fact that so much of what really is important work these days is really quite portable and people do take it with them it's in their minds and on their phones and on their gizmos. It, it, it does put um, a, that, that boundary between work and not work is something that has to be thought through uh, and, and sometimes negotiated and agreed upon that this with yourself, <laughs> with the people in your personal life, as well as with the employer. So it, it is a matter of um, uh, that, that, that you have to draw the line somewhere. And sometimes drawing that line means a dialogue with the employer about uh, to what extent are you to be available at odd hours, to what extent is the employer saying that really uh, you're, what, what are the reasonable amount of time and energy that's supposed to go into the job? I think, um, so, so, because because the gizmos will make it, if there's any anxiety, and often there is anxiety about jobs, then going to the uh, device in order to just get a bit more information or check one more thing, or you know, it, it means that you're continually thinking about these kinds of uh, issues that pertain to the work life, and you don't get that distance, which is part of the whole recovery process, is to disengage from thinking about work and everything going on at work for a period of time. So uh, being able to uh, get that distance is an important thing to do. And that's partly individual discipline, but it's also partly how you work things out with the employer and what those expectations are. And I don't know if you, uh, you've probably followed that there are some attempts at regulating it more on a macro or meso level in that France has introduced the legislation on the right to disconnect. Actually, Canada is now preparing a new labor regulation next year where they also would like to introduce this right to disconnect. 
some companies I know of in Germany, Volkswagen have uh, started switching off their server, the email server at certain times. Uh, do you think these measures can be effective or is it really up to the individual or in the negotiation between the individual and the superior or family members? Right. Well, I think it it gets back to, in some ways, what I mentioned before about whether the problems in the work setting are uh, deliberate organizational policy or whether they're just a breakdown in management. Because uh, where you really need these kinds of uh, legal uh, policy level interventions uh, like the legislation is when uh, effectively what's going on is employers are looking to get a lot of unpaid work time out of people because uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, that really does call for legal intervention in that way because otherwise uh, there are hopefully only a small minority of employers, but there are employers in the world who will want to uh, essentially get unpaid work time out of people and by using these kinds of, uh, you know, this this fluid boundary in order to get there. So I think that's, that, that's important at withdrawing the line in that kind of way. Otherwise, I think, you know, I mean, if, if you just simply can't send emails to people overnight or um, on the weekends, then uh, I think, that would um, that would probably help people with the recovery. It's not going to get in the way, uh, and and there's a whole other world of an internet that people can use to uh, pursue their aspirations in other ways. So it's simply not the the work server is not the only route in order to do things. So I think it's probably, I think it'll be a net benefit overall. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight and and really sharing it so generously. Um, I'm really enjoying this conversation and I'm sure our listeners are also just, you know, jotting down all sorts of ideas because it's very, very valuable. Um, But time is always way too fast on the podcast. So before we go to the last question, uh, may I ask you to share with listeners um, where they can uh, see more of your work, your publication, or or possibly even uh, reach out to you? Okay, well, um, I think in terms of publications that uh, ResearchGate is probably a good way of getting uh, copies of my publications. I have most everything that's not a book uh, available through that route. And so that is certainly a route there. I have a website of mplighter.com. I had another website called Work Engagement, but I haven't moved the name over to this one yet. So I had to change all that around when I moved to Australia. But it's mplighter, L-E-I-T-E-R, dot com is uh, my website. And I have some posts there about my uh, work that I'm doing these days. So that's a good place to go. And um, my email is just michael.lighter at deakin, D-E-A-K-I-N, dot edu.au Thank you so much. Now, just because you said it and I jotted it down and I wanted to ask you. So, before we go to the last question, I have another question if you don't mind about work engagement. So, really um not focusing necessarily on um almost prevention uh or 
no, it, it is focusing on prevention, but perhaps it takes, it frames the whole conversation in a more positive light for employers also to be contributing to something positive rather than fighting off something negative, if I can be so simplistic. Um, so so how, what did you find in your research in terms of the links between burnout and work engagement? And, and what are maybe some of the levers of work engagement that employers or workplaces can, can start to focus on? Oh, my. Okay. I yeah, think big, big question. The, uh, that's, 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 a, that's a nice little question. To <laughs> okay. Just to jut it in that, there. Um, on, on a larger kind of context, I think what uh, we were looking at doing when I was working with Christina Maslach, uh, was, I guess it's about 20 years ago, we were writing The Truth About Burnout. And part what we're looking at are those issues, uh, those dimensions of energy, involvement, and efficacy. We just see as those are fundamental qualities that any one of which can have a crisis or be a real positive quality uh, that defines people's sort of psychological connection with work. And so I like the idea uh, that you have some core constructs and the way that they sort of mix and mismatch and match uh, in various ways defines some distinct um, sort of profiles of how people interact with work. And that, uh, you know, in those same way, I, I really look at uh, engagement, you know, as energetic and really involved, dedicated, and, and, and having a sense of efficacy with it. And, and that largely coincides with how, how, how my, my colleagues, uh, uh, you know, Bakker and Shafali and, and others uh, look at it as well. But I have my own particular angle in that regard in terms of I like building these profiles of how people experience their work life out of some very fundamental core dimensions rather than just having a one distinct world that's called engagement and 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 a whole other uh, disconnected world that's called burnout i think that no it's much better to think of those in a larger as different uh, profiles within a larger conceptual space and the things that really um uh, make a difference in that way i think it really is What's associated with burnout is most often, you know, the bad things that are happening at work and that people have a pretty clear idea in terms of unpleasant social encounters, in terms of injustice, in terms of excessive workloads. Uh, it's that really it's bad stuff that pushes burnout and it is uh, resources. It's uh, really positive social contacts with people and uh, meaningful recognition that moves over towards the uh, engagement and to the scale. So I think that, uh, and, and, and it gets sort of muddled somewhere in, 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 in between. Uh, and I think that there, uh, like what I spot is, is that with when we're looking at our data, that there also is a group that doesn't have particularly anything bad happening, but they're not having anything particularly great happening either. And they're sort of in this sort of, ineffective, undefined kind of space, and that that's uh, sort of, in a way, the neutral ground in between. And you want to, uh, uh, I mean, one, if people are really 
in distress and experiencing a lot of really negative pressures within their workplace. Uh, you can't just ignore that and say, we'll give them some good stuff. No, you got to address those problems. You've got to, they need to be addressed. And, and that's going to help, uh, you know, take away the pressures moving towards burnout. But then that's not, that, getting up to neutral, it isn't enough in this day and age. You then have to figure out how do we then bring in uh, stronger resources in order to move things towards a really, um, you know, exceptional experience of work life. I mean, this so resonates on in both in two angles. One is that that's what I find also working. That's what we find working with organizations is that you have, if there's a crisis, they will be moved to change and they will seek some sort of external uh, support to change. But there's a lot of, really a lot of uh, organizations that are, as you say, stuck in that kind of twilight zone in the middle where they're chugging on just fine, not exceptional, but, you know, there's not a big crisis. And that's, I find, is so, such a pity of a lot of wasted opportunity of people's talents and 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 potential in there somehow. This, All oh, those hopes okay. and dreams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. dramatic. Yes. yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's these people who are not even thinking about changing jobs. So they are happy more or less to stay there. But but that's so difficult to estimate or calculate this loss or cost to an employer where the employees show up and they're functional but they're not mm -hmm. giving their best selves because right. there's still something holding them back. And I'm fascinated with that whole idea of all of those in the middle. And the yeah. other, if I can just reflect on the other thing that you said is I find that extremely valuable and empowering that you have these levers or dimensions, almost like a toolbox, which is much more, uh, even for, you know, non-academics or non managers much more easy to grasp to have okay i have these six things in my toolbox and how can i get more of these and then less of these and then improve my experience yeah yes it, it does i think it it, it gives uh, it gives a, a whole new set of options about how to approach the problem fantastic so now really coming to the last question because i know your time <laughs> is very precious um if I could ask you to uh, give one advice to senior management based on all your experience and, and what you know now, what would be your one advice? Uh, to improve the social dynamics of work groups. I think that, uh, as I mentioned before, I think that it's the little day-to-day -day social encounters among people that defines the culture and the um, that is how people experience the workplace culture and a uh, respectful, um, encouraging, confirming workplace culture is something that does move people towards engagement. Whereas uh, disrespectful or neglectful uh, kinds of, of encounters among people does nudge them over towards burnout. So I think that what work groups, you can work with work groups to improve their ratio of how many of, uh, to what extent are, what are your chances when you interact with somebody in this group that they're going to be pleasant to you? 
versus being unpleasant. And if you can improve that, if you can improve that ratio, uh, the the group's going to start gathering more momentum in a positive direction. So I think taking a a dedicated process um, to to you know establish psychological safety so that people can change and explore new ways of interacting with each other. I think that's one of the more available and powerful things that employers can do to uh, to have a better uh, and more healthy work work life. Well, thank you so much. This has been really eye-opening and 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 just really took my understanding of the issue to a whole new level and I'm sure it has also done this for the listeners so thank you so much Dr. Leder to come on the podcast and, and sharing your insights so generously with our listeners well thank you I really enjoyed the conversation with you and um, I, I wish you well